Good morning and welcome to Rising. We are extremely excited about the show today and eager to discuss everything going on. Yeah. Rihanna, what can they expect? It's been a big night. Okay, Politico's Brittany Gibson will join us to break down her new reporting on some questionable payments made to Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams' campaign chair. Plus, we'll get into the much-discussed Fetterman-Oz debate out of Pennsylvania last night. You will not want to miss that. But first, the Congressional Progressive Caucus has now withdrawn its letter pushing President Biden to engage in direct diplomacy with Russia less than 24 hours after its release. Progressives faced enormous backlash from both sides of the aisle for what critics say is an overly conciliatory approach toward Russian President Vladimir Putin. Even Senator Bernie Sanders refused to endorse the letter and directly dismissed anti-war protesters' claims that the Biden administration's current strategy is too hawkish. Here's Joe Scarborough's take on MSNBC yesterday. Did they, did they walk into uh, Kevin McCarthy's office and say, hey, we want to help you out here. We know that you stuck your foot <laughs> in your mouth about Ukraine, so we're going to help you out here. I, just think about this. Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. Vladimir Putin commits war crimes against the Ukrainian people. And you have 30 progressives saying America must talk to Russia. I, some, something's left out of that equation. And that would be the Ukrainian people who are victims of war crimes every day, Mike. No, no one's saying Zelensky shouldn't be invited to the meeting. <laughs> Jesus. In a statement released last night, CPC Chairwoman Pramila Jayapal said the letter was drafted several months ago and then blamed an unnamed staffer for releasing it without proper vetting on Monday. Jayapal called the letter a, quote, distraction and reaffirmed the CPC's commitment to supporting the Ukrainian military. This is a disaster it's, and a, yep. a very sad and unfortunate, I'm genuinely sad yep. at, at the extent to which this is a setback for uh, for the anti-war uh, contingent to the extent there even was one yep. within the Democratic Party. Uh, humiliating, in fact, yeah. for, uh, for the position I support. Look, uh, uh, when we talked about this earlier this week, I, you know, reference the fact that it could be the case that these protests that AOC has been um, subjected to, <laughs> confronted with at these town halls and the like, might have actually moved the needle. Maybe progressives woke up and said, you know what, you're right. We shouldn't be losing the anti-war movement to people who have somewhat consistent records on being anti-interventionist, who are more conservative to them more broadly. And so here comes this letter, which... I want to be really clear, was incredibly milquetoast and is com being completely mischaracterized by Joe Scarborough. Yes. The original letter did no not go far enough. Here, here's just a little bit of what it said. It, it didn't ask for any withdrawal of funding, no. of aid, of military no. support, nothing. It simply said, um, given the destruction created by this war, blah, 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 uh, we believe it's in the interest of Ukraine and the United States and the world to avoid a prolonged conflict. For this reason, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. This is consistent with your recognition that, quote, there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement here and your concern that Vladimir Putin, quote, doesn't have a way out na right now and I'm trying to figure out what we do about it. The American people have the right to attach some conditions right. to the endless aid we are yep. giving to Ukraine. The letter did not say the aid should end. Nope. It just said, let's 
push for diplomacy as we are doing this, Correct. bringing it closer to in line with the with uh, uh, the soon to be likely Speaker McCarthy's uh, position in that the the end the aid cannot be endless, cannot be no conditions, no strings attached That's forever, right. which is what the Biden administration has said. Right. Think it was so good to see some movement in the Democratic Party the other way. Bit. No, and that was all. So, what do you actually think? Did was this letter released? By a staffer who's maybe more pro uh, or more anti-war and was trying to create some momentum there or was genuinely an accident or Jayapal signed off on it and then changed her mind after the blowback. I, I think, think any of I those think, things are possible. I mean, I can't know for sure, obviously, yeah. but my impression is that it was signed off on. Maybe it was drafted at an earlier time, but they're completely throwing this aid under the bus. So in the, in the, in the new letter, retracting the original letter, you know, they argue that it was it, the timing was off. Ilhan Omar did a tweet to that effect. But Ro Khanna, I will give him credit. He's been standing by the original yeah. letter, and he he tweeted uh, a, a tweet that said basically, let me let me say something about the CBC staff. They're extraordinary. They have helped shape the yeah. biggest goals for progressives and have been very effective in our wins. And he stood by them. Yeah, but look, we, we the, actually, the I think we have something from him on that. Let's play that. Yeah. I think my job is to make sure I'm looking out for America's national interest and for our values. And let me tell you, it's in our interest to make sure there's not nuclear war. It's in our interest to make sure this war doesn't escalate. And it is in Ukraine's uh, interest and the world's interest to make sure that we do everything possible to lessen civilian casualties. Now, if someone wasn't voting for arms or someone was saying, we're not going to vote for new aid packages, that's what uh, Leader McCarthy is saying, that he may not vote for uh, new aid. That's a problem. But he's virtually alone. Everyone else, most other people tried to distance themselves, didn't try, did aggressively distance themselves from the letter uh, for fear of appearing too dovish toward Russia. I, this is insane. It's truly it, insane. It, it, it really is. And listen, listen to what, listen to what, how they characterize um, the 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 new letter, the withdrawal letter. Uh, there's there's this implication that. You know, again, given how mild the original letter was, it didn't it didn't say anything the way uh, of the likes that it's being characterized here. The new letter says the proximity of these statements created the unfortunate appearance that Democrats, who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every package of military, strategic, and economic assistance to the Ukrainian people, are somehow aligned with Republicans who seek to pull the plug on American support for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian forces. How jingoistic! Is is this coming from not just the Democratic Party, but the progressive flank of the Democratic Party, kowtowing to this idea that if a Republican says anything like this, then it must be a bad idea. For all of the crowing about bipartisanship that comes out of Congress, this is the kind of bipartisanship we would actually like to see. Yes. People allying on, an yes. allying on an anti-war effort. Unfortunately, they bent the knee. Even Bernie Sanders came out and said that the letter was a bad idea and supported the it's withdrawal of it. And the whole thing about the timing, that also does doesn't make any sense because one of the excuses kind of being floated there, right, is that when the letter was written several weeks or months ago, um, the Ukrainians were in a worse military uh, military situation, and then they've had all these victories, and and now so then the implication would be well now it, it, we no longer need diplomacy because they're winning and they're doing so well. Though, but that situation could easily be reversed when Russia commits more resources over the coming weeks and months. Now is a great time to have diplomacy and, and use Ukraine's—good, I'm glad they're in a strong position. Again, it's their country. 
we support them, etc. But use this, uh, use their victories as leverage to work out a settlement. That would be a, a great idea. The idea that well, now we don't need diplomacy because they're, they're going to defeat Russia is, insane, is ridiculous. <laughs> it's completely is ridiculous. Russia it's completely with American ridiculous. military it, it is absurd. It is absurd, and it speaks to the stated goals of the State Department, which is to go mm-hmm. a blank check at all costs to weaken Russia. Like check, that's to, the Biden administration stated yeah. position. And with, with the goal of weakening Russia, not necessarily doing whatever is advantageous for the Ukrainians who are the ones that are mm-hmm. suffering and dying in the yeah. context of Let alone our people who are economically affected by right. all this, which is playing to re- clearly playing to Republican strengths in this coming election, which Correct. is we're two weeks away. Correct. Well, we'll get into more of the fallout, actually, from this letter. We're going to continue talking about this a little bit later with The Hill's Hannah Trudeau. And uh, we'll have next Brianna's Radar and discussion of the Fetterman-Oz debate, which I know you're eager to hear from us on. Stay tuned. Well, Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, it looks like a disaster over in Congress for Democrats. The statistics analysts over at 538 are putting their chances of Republicans flipping the House at more than 70%. The reason voters are choosing to go right? Well, polls show that inflation is voters' top priority. And Republicans are perceived to be more able to bring inflation down than Democrats. When asked, Who do you trust more to fight inflation? Voters say the GOP by more than 19 points, according to an ABC Washington Post poll. So before we throw our hands up jubilantly, thrilled that the adults in the room will finally get a crack at bringing down the rising price of goods and services, it's worth asking, what is the Republican plan to fight inflation? Well, Bloomberg's Jack Fitzpatrick did the work of interviewing a number of Congress members who are likely to leave the House Budget Committee if conservatives take back control. What did they say? Well, they plan to cut retirement and health care programs. Specifically, according to a recent piece by New York Mag's Eric Levitz, Republicans plan to refuse to raise the debt ceiling this fall, thereby blocking funding for the federal government and its workers, unless Biden agrees to cut Social Security and Medicare. In the words of Representative Buddy Carter of Georgia, quote, our main focus has got to be non-discretionary. It's got to be on entitlements. Representative Jody Arrington of Texas's 19th district explained that he wants eligibility reforms, meaning raising the eligibility age for Medicare and imposing a means test for Social Security and Medicare benefits. Representative Lloyd Smucker of Pennsylvania co-signed this plan saying some sort of means testing is on the table. So what does that mean for you? Well, let's start with Medicare cuts. 18.4% of the country is covered by Medicare, a program to provide health care for the elderly, people over 65, with Blue California and Red Florida hosting the most Medicare recipients in the country. Medicare, in its current form, is one of the most popular programs in the country, which explains why Republicans haven't exactly been screaming from the rooftops about their plan to cut it. Meanwhile, 25% of the country receives Social Security, a program, of course, for retirees and the disabled. Without Social Security, the poverty rate for these groups, for those over 65, rather, would exceed 40%. And about a quarter of all states, in about a quarter of all states, poverty would exceed 40% without this program. States like Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Red states with representatives who arguably aren't looking out for the best interest of their precarious constituents. In fact, when you examine Republican messaging closely, 
you see that their strategy has largely been to avoid talking about their actual plans and to instead focus on what Biden and the Democrats have done wrong to cause inflation. Namely, they say, COVID-era spending. But here's the problem for Republicans. That spending, which, Repu which conservatives now blame for high inflation, was in fact very popular even among their constituents. So conservatives are choosing to criticize spending broadly without doing two important things. One, they fail to point out what COVID spending specifically they would have shut down. And two, they rarely explain why America's COVID relief is alle allegedly the driver of inflation when inflation is similarly high or higher in nearly every other peer country. Would a Republican House have torpedoed the child tax credit, which 59% of Americans and 41% of Republicans backed? Certainly seems likely, given that zero Republicans voted for that program, a program which, by the way, disproportionately paid out to Republican states. Would Republicans have voted down the popular $1,400, wasn't enough, but $1,400 COVID relief checks or the supercharged unemployment benefits, which were supported by 67% of Americans? It seems likely, since those popular provisions received zero votes from Republicans in the House. And here's the important question. Would America be better off if those things hadn't happened? Certainly, there was quite a bit, bit of pork in the American Rescue Plan that I would have liked to see cut. Most of the PPP funds went to the richest 20% of Americans, while small businesses went bankrupt. Kanye West, no longer a billionaire for other reasons, received PPP loans, as did the Church of Scientology and way too many country clubs. COVID aid included $366 billion for the wealthy, but it seems unlikely that under Republican control, that spending would have necessarily been curbed after all. Marjorie Taylor Greene benefited from over $183,000 in PPP forgiveness. Matt Gates had nearly half a million dollars forgiven. And you can add Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, Kevin Hearn, and, Mar and Mike Kelly to the list. They all had between one and $1.4 million forgiven under that program. So again, in a Republican-led Congress, it looks like we might expect less spending, that is, less spending on the poor, and potentially as much or more spending on the rich. What will that do for inflation? Look, it simply is not clear that cutting spending on basic social programs that have supported the elderly and sick for over half a century would have a measurable effect on inflation. As Bernie Sanders and others have pointed out, inflation rates in the United States are comparable to the rates experienced in our peer countries because a significant driver of inflation has been the supply chain crisis triggered by the COVID pandemic and shutdowns. The Republicans who conspired with corporate Dems to ship American jobs overseas are now trying to punish American voters, trying to get by by stripping away their Medicare and Social Security, rather than dealing with the consequences of moving essential goods and services halfway around the world to save a buck. Democrats aren't faultless here, but they have tried to end tax breaks for companies that outsource jobs. Republicans blocked them. Republicans literally blocked an amendment called Stop Outsourcing of American Jobs Amendment back in 2017. Is that what we can expect from a Republican-led House? And I haven't even addressed corporate greed, which experts say is a significant driver of inflation. Companies are taking advantage of the supply crisis and are jacking up prices. It's why the price of gas at the pump isn't connected to the price per barrel. The record profits corporations are seeing, while the rest of the country is struggling, aren't coming from nowhere. 
Are Republicans who completely failed to acknowledge this particular driver of inflation likely to hold corporations accountable? Now, in case you think I'm being too unfair to Republicans with respect to their inflation plans, Eric Levitz reports that last June, a conservative caucus of more than three quarters of House Republicans called the Republican Study Committee released a domestic budget plan that calls, call, sorry, calls for raising the Medicare eligibility age to 67 and the Social Security eligibility age to 70. It backed withholding payments to those who retired early and had earnings over a certain limit. And it promoted a Social Security privatization plan. Are you ready for the private banks to gamble with your retirement? How did that go with your mortgage back in 2008? This plan stands to be unpopular with Republicans and Democrats alike on its face, but you haven't heard much about it because the conservative press didn't cover the fact that the whole Republican strategy involves making life harder for seniors who are already struggling to get by. Instead, they framed it as a culture war plan. Quote, GOP budget proposal seeks to reverse decades of anti-family policies, announced the Daily Caller. It's making retirement unaffordable for grandma, pro-family, GOP budget proposal will return us to Cold War footing to counter China threat, is how the National Review characterized the plan. So much for the anti-war right. Does war spending not count toward inflation? <laughs> Exclusive Republican Study Committee creates holistic immigration plan to raise wages, grow middle class, announced Breitbart. See, I, I thought the whole point of America first rhetoric was to save money to help Americans first not to keep out immigrants at the same time that Americans are pinched for the last few pennies they've got. I've said this a million times on this show, but I hope it's clear how cultural commitments are being used to whitewash harsh cuts to the American way of life. Putting aside for a moment your feelings on immigrants or what might be perceived as anti-family cultural preferences on the left, childcare is pro-family, elder care, is pro-family, quite literally. These popular bedrock policies are on the chopping block and almost nobody knows. You have to ask yourself, is owning the libs worth working until you're 70? Oh, I have many objections today. All right, hit me, Ravi. Well, you're complaining in the middle part of your radar, I think fair, totally fairly, about people like Kanye West and a bunch of wealthy Republicans getting COVID money. Right, I don't support giving them COVID money. But that would essentially mean means testing it, which is what you were complaining about in the beginning. Means testing means not giving people who don't need welfare or, so, or social support, only giving it to the people who need it, which is what I would advi advise doing for these programs like Medicare and Social Security. So what I would advise doing is simply raising the taxes on the rich. Because, <laughs> look, means testing is very difficult for all the reasons we see. We saw, I forget what the number was exactly, but like a Millions of dollars are being spent to means test, to, to pay for the means testing for student debt relief when you could simply implement a wealth tax that would capture earnings over a certain amount and claw them back instead of doing it and putting the onus on poor people to prove exactly how poor and needy they are. And I'm glad you raised that because this is an issue with Social Security as well. If you are Kanye West, if you are a millionaire or a billionaire, you are contributing, the, the, the amount that comes out of your income towards Social Security caps at a relatively low amount. So someone paying $50,000 or you know, you know, $100,000 a year, or making $100,000 a year rather, uh, is being 
taxed at a not dissimilar rate in terms of how much money is going to Social Security as Bill Gates. And that cap was put on, advocated for, by corporatists who obviously wanted to limit the, how much they paid into the Social Security system. If they still had six whatever percent of their income being taken out and then going into the Social Security coffers like everybody else, it would absolutely fund the, the program. And That's in July... They're still putting in tons more money. It doesn't matter. They're making... There are three people in the world who have more wealth than the bottom half of human population. They're contributing more in taxes to one in the... Yes, they, they are. are. That's the, that's exactly, in dollar amounts, they are. They, but Not they, as a percentage of their income because their income is vast, but in total Robbie, amounts, they are. That's, that's tantamount to an argument that says, if I have a million dollars and you have... $10, you giving $10 to charity and me giving into $100 to charity makes me a good guy. It's about no, proportion. No, it means if I give 1% of my income, it's $1, and if they give 1% of their income, it's... Thousand. That's the I'm point. Not they're not giving 1% of their income. The spot, but. They're, they're not... So it, the, over a certain amount, they no longer have to pay that six, whatever, I'm forgetting the exact number, percent of their, their income that goes into... Um, the Social Security coffers. That's the whole point. They have an artificial cap. Imagine if, if you're a $50,000 uh, earner a year and somebody else has a $200,000 earner a year, but we decided for some reason that anybody who makes over $100,000, there's a maximum amount they can have to contribute to Social Security. That's the world we live in where the richest people in the world have said, after a certain amount, it's fine. Even though you have all of these employees who are earning minimum wage salaries and aren't able to get by, yeah, I, just, and you're, I have you're, no desire you're making to profits hand over punish fist. people for succeeding it's not about and confiscate more of their they, wealth. Telling someone their wealth. They, why, why is it that people constantly characterize rich people having to pay their fair share, a rich person having to pay the exact same tax rate as a poor person, as somehow punishing a rich person? Are rich people I mean, so I don't, fragile? I don't, I, I don't can't? lust to confiscate poor people's money either. It's not. They should just pay sorry, nothing. But you do <laughs> lust to confiscate poor people's money because the Republican plan here is to confiscate, confiscate money, draw back money from some of the only bedrock programs that keep entire quarters of the country from I being want at everyone a 40% to keep poverty rate. If all of it or as close to all of it as you possibly can, what you make on your own. It's your money. Um, but, but going back to what you're saying, <laughs> would you send support changing Medicare in such a way that, so, so I don't, so it used to be true that older people were no longer working, were poor, needed the benefits yeah, of Medicare. We, now we have, I mean, frankly, a lot of old people are very wealthy. Obviously not all old people, but shouldn't the program just be changed in a way that, so people who can't pay, so, so it should be a program for people who can't pay for medical care, or don't have insurance, whatever it is, rather than just a program automatically for old people, which is in effect mean testing. So you, you want to take people and you want people to not be able to take advantage I think of a non- Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me ask the question. Okay. You want people to not be able to take advantage of a, mean, of a, of a program that is not means-tested and instead maintain a kind of means-testing for the rich. Instead of having the rich pay their fair share into a program which would make it sustainable, which again is a plan that has been introduced by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, Warren last summer. Instead of simply asking rich people to pay the same percentage of their income into the program that everybody else has to pay, which would make the program sustainable, instead of simply taxing it on that end, you want another means-tested hurdle where people have to for fill out more paperwork to prove they're poor enough to take advantage of the program that they need to survive when they're elderly. I think our welfare program should benefit the truly needy. I would restructure them to help people who need the support of the state and, and the taxpayers. And what, is, what is the objection to simply clawing that money back from rich people on the back end instead of putting the onus on poor people to fill out that form on the, on the front end? Because right now, <clears throat> 
only a small, like a percentage, a fraction of people who actually qualify for welfare benefits for all of these social safety benefits mm -hmm. actually take advantage of these programs because there are real barriers to people accessing them. That is just, that is just true. So knowing that's the case and knowing that life is harder for poor, poor people, especially elderly people, you would prefer that elderly people take have to go jump through that hoop instead of just doing the same payroll tax that the rest of us have to pay coming out of our salaries to support social security why shouldn't bill gates have to pay I that exact same tax i would tax? just not have to do that either i've only gotten to like six of my 30 objections to the things you said <laughs> as we would get into the child care and other things i would i would legalize child care I, let's legalize it let's what do you mean? stop credentialing it stop all the requirements in dc i've talked about this repeatedly on the show the requirements put on people to just babysit your kids are are insane and are, are very difficult for working families for everyone. Let's, let's legalize work in this country again. Let people work. Bring down the cost of everything. So in the context of a pandemic emergency, your response wouldn't have been to give people money to help them support the child care facilities that already exist and have been vetted and are safe and don't have pedophiles working at them and have people Oh, now we're going to fear monger about... Well, I'm sorry. Marjorie Taylor Greene over here. The pedophiles everywhere I, I, after I, your... I didn't say pedophiles are everywhere, but they certainly do exist. And I think a lot of people with children would blanch at the idea. Look, there are informal child care networks that people take advantage of because they have to. And people rely on their family and things like that. But in the context of the pandemic, you would not support, you would not have supported the child tax credit. I respect that position. Majorities of Americans did support it and did want it, and Republicans are going to have with, to. I never and now argue Republicans with popular. Are I do have not to, claim my views are. Republicans are, are going to have to contend with the reality of the fact that they're supporting these politicians, who frankly are completely out of step with what they say on paper they they actually want for themselves I, I and their families. I think I've gotten to number seven, but I'm being told we have to wrap. So <laughs> we will continue this discussion at a later date. More rising right after this. Penn State canceled a planned comedy event, purported comedy event, I don't think it would have been very funny, on Monday that was set to be co-hosted by the founder of the far-right Proud Boys group, Gavin McInnes, after a demonstration against the speakers turned violent. According to the New York Times, police stood back as someone, allegedly a, a right-wing figure, uh, reportedly pulled out a canister of mace and pointed it at a crowd of anti-Proud Boy protesters and sprayed some of them. Let's watch. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> open your eyes. Open your eyes. Right eye. Right eye. A Penn State student seemingly spit on the host of the Conspiracy Castle podcast and a co-host of the event, Alex Stein. This is more protesters reacted to Stein's arrival at the campus. The New York Times reports that Penn State officials previously said they would hold the event to support free speech, even as they criticized what they categorized as McKenna's quote, vitriolic and hateful language, end quote. 
Penn State put out a statement saying that the threat of escalating violence causes university police to cancel speaking events. They also listed resources for people who have been impacted by this event. And for, for context, we should you know clarify for people who have forgotten who the Proud Boys are. Um, they're defined as a far-right, neo-fascist, white nationalist, and exclusively male organization that promotes and engages in political violence in the United States. It has been called a street gang and was designated as a terrorist group in Canada and New Zealand. And Gavin McInnes started the group and has since stepped down from it. What I thought was because he was kind of facing uh, maybe legal pressure to do so. I, that's, mm -hmm. That was my understanding. I could be wrong about that mm -hmm. because of the you know, pending issues with the proud legal issues they had gotten themselves into. Yes, very, very reprehensible group. Uh, so just to be totally clear, the group is reprehensible. Gavin McInnes is, has become reprehensible. Um, uh, this Alex Stein figure I find to be perhaps the most obnoxious person on all of planet Earth. Um, he's the one. I think you are familiar with him. He's the one who he he he, uh, he harassed that Vice journalist at um, at maybe at CPAC or some conservative. Or and he also he he followed AOC on the street in DC. Um, he, he's he's I mean he's also done this to Republicans who he has clashed with. He's like a, he's a street. Mm. Persona. Um, he's he's become a bigger deal. He's, he's upside lately. down, Michael Moore. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, from the nineties. That's, That's pretty good. Um, I yeah, he's. Uh, I don't. I don't enjoy his shtick. I'll mm. put it that way. Um, that said, look, he has uh, that the student group that invited them to speak. I, I think has every right to do that. Um, the I, the police said they had no choice but to shut down the event because this protest was getting out of hand. It did it look does, rowdy. It does. It did in fact get out of hand because tear gas was sprayed uh, allegedly by the by the pro Proud Boys side. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I would I, I think the spectacle um, almost works to the advantage of people like Gavin McInnes and the Proud Boys because their whole. You know, ideas that we're being silenced, we're being suppressed. You know, they won't let you listen to us. They show up and they try to attack us. Yeah, I mean, um, that's what's so frustrating about this. Penn State literally play... explicitly said, we want to have this group on campus because of free speech issues. They show up. I don't know who started what, but obviously there's an escalation, which completely justifies them wanting to shut it down. They yeah. can't have the liability of students getting yeah. hurt. MACE is not even legal to carry in a lot of yes. places because it can be so legitimately dangerous. Um, so you're right. Like there is this kind of weird cyclical thing where if you want to make your whole persona being canceled and kind of like a warrior because you're willing to go against the grain, moments like this always advantage you. So I put to you this question, is that an argument against schools, quote unquote, platforming people like this? Well, the school has no choice. Public university, it, it just has to. If I, this, I would advise the student group not to. I don't think there's actually much to gain from having to listen to any of these people. So I, if I was a student group, I would not invite Gavin McGinnis for the Proud Boys to speak, obviously. But given that someone did that, um, I would advise the counter-protesters not to bother. Just don't. Like, what if these people deliver remarks to a room with like two people in it and no yeah, one says anything and they go, weird... like, they're not, they're not influential or important enough to merit a, 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 they don't need to be responded to. They are a very small group of, they're, they're engaged in LARPing. They're doing live action yeah. role playing. They need the other side to also show up and do their live action role playing. Then we have the scuffle, and then the Washington Post, and New York Times, and NPR, and everybody has to cover it. We talk about it. Mm -hmm. If that, that I, just doesn't happen if the other side doesn't provide that. And I'm not, like, I'm not blaming no, them for that. doing I, it. I completely but, accept that. I understand that as strategically. But what I'm asking you is, isn't that a kind of 
what does that mean for the free speech rights of the people who have legitimate objections to these things? I think that in some ways the free speech framework is completely ridiculous and, and needs to be dropped by some of these people for exactly this reason. None of this is about free speech. None of this is about people's genuine openness to debate. And it becomes a parody of, I think, what are important issues when we all buy into the idea that someone showing up to a college campus with military gear and mace is someone who's a free speech warrior. Yeah, no, no, 100%. But, but they can be, because they do have a, it's a First Amendment issue, right? It's out of, if the university took aggressive actions to not allow it, they could get sued for that as well. Well, they could when do they, what the University of Florida uh, has apparently done, which is to enforce a ban on indoor protest, which they did after a demonstration earlier this month against the selection of U.S. Senator Ben Sass as a finalist for the position of the school's president happened, AP News reports. Uh, Sass, who is a Republican, has received criticism regarding his opposition to same-sex marriage. Once Sass himself said he had no problem with the protesters who were protesting. Yeah, so his. what do you make of this so ban I on indoor protesting? Exactly, well, they shouldn't have a ban on indoor protesting. If it's, you know, if it's in, I mean, the protests are not supposed to, you, you, you don't have to allow there to be a protest that actually interrupts, like, the functioning of the school. Which that, it didn't. Which it, didn't, it did not sure. interrupt Ben Sass's. So if they're, if, I'd have to look specifically at the, if they're saying you can't, you know, be outside a classroom loudly chanting or something, that is a policy they're allowed to have. They're saying you can't stand in the hallways and, and have posters, then I would say that's a bad well, policy. Well, I think that's exactly yeah. what happened. Well, they should and not have that again, that's I, Ben Sass ironic. said he didn't want that policy. Yeah, well, Ben Sass said what Ben Sass wanted, but on Ben Sass's, mm-hmm. on ben Sass's behalf, as a response to what happened to a Ben Sass pro- speech, the protesters who were on the left side of things here, they were protesting the fact that Ben Sass doesn't support gay marriage and, uh, along an, uh, with a number of other things, are the ones that are being quote unquote censored. And this is the thing. We go around and round and round. We all know that there's not a single well, person are. on the right who, who will defend um, the right to do an, a non-confrontational, non-interrupting indoor protest. And so none of this is really about any of it. Like, none of it matters. <laughs> like, none oh. of it is about anything at all. It's just people trying to, they know that this is an issue that makes people feel, like, people like to feel like an underdog. For years, Republicans, I think, rightly identified this, the allure of kind of a victim status. And how that was playing out on the left. Where did they learn that from? Oh, right, yes. And now they are doing it in ways that I feel like aren't even connected to people's legitimate historical victimization. I'm sorry. Like, if you were saying slavery was bad, so, you know, Jim Crow was bad, I have a lot more interest in, in endorsing that people trying to get actual equality in the world and people kind of manufacturing or cherry picking moments of being told to do X, Y, and Z or stand here or move there on a college campus as a real victimization. None of it is should be the sine qua non of your existence, but here we are. Mm. Uh, well, this was a reminder that campus is back in full swing. There used to be, uh, for a while, there was a lot of these stories. I, I used to really cover kind of campus protests as, as one of my main beats, and there was you know one of these a week for like a five-year period, and then COVID happened, and there was obviously less now we, activity Now we on really campus. know why you're against the shutdowns, Robbie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, you got me, Bree. got me. More rising after this, but in lowercase for some reason. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. 
And this campaign is all about, to me, is about fighting for everyone in Pennsylvania that ever got knocked down that needs to get back up and fighting for all forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania that also got knocked down that needs to keep get back up. Thank you very much. That was Democratic Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate John Fetterman during the Keystone State's first and only debate addressing the so-called elephant in the room. Throughout the night, Fetterman struggled with his speech due to suffering a stroke several months ago. Fetterman faced off against Republican challenger Dr. Mehmet Oz, who made the case that he was the change candidate. Let's listen to that. I've loved traveling to the four corners of the beautiful Commonwealth, and I've heard your problems. I'm a surgeon, doctor. I listen to what you say, and I'm trying to help address them today. I've talked to seniors worried their Social Security checks wouldn't go far enough with the raging inflation. I've talked to couples when I make their first down payment on a new house and they can't afford it anymore because of interest rates. I've talked to families. You want to cut Social Security. M Mr. Fetterman, it's his turn for his closing. I've talked to, f to families worried about fentanyl showing up in their mailbox and literally taking the lives of their children who they find blue in bed. I, I've talked to families who won't let their kids go outside because of the crime wave that's been facilitated by left radical policies like the ones John Fetterman has been advocating for. But here's the deal. Right? None of this has to happen. This is all very addressable. I'm a surgeon. I'm not a politician. We take big problems, we focus on them, and we fix them. We do it by uniting, by coming together, not dividing. And by doing that, we can get ahead. But I've got one question to challenge you with, just one question. If you take what I'm saying to heart, ask yourself this and others in your family. Are you unhappy with where America's headed? I am. And if you are as well, then I'm the candidate for change. And we also have part of Fetterman's closing statement. Watch this. It ever got knocked down. They had to get back up again. You know, I'm also fighting for any forgotten community all across Pennsylvania. They ever got knocked down. That had to be made to get back up. You know, I've made my entire career dedicating to those kinds of pursuits. I started as a GED instructor back in, in Braddock over 20 years ago because I believe it's about serving Pennsylvania, not about using Pennsylvania for uh, their own end interests as well. Uh, to me, careers are revealed uh, by your, your real underlying values. And my values have always been about fighting for forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania. All right, thank you, Mr. So it was a disaster for Fetterman, in my view, and I, that's the view of, I think, a lot of commentators who watched it. Um, that was him at his most coherent. He uh, struggled so many times to answer questions, uh, repeated himself. I, if, if I were his staff, his handlers, I would not have let him do this debate. Um, I, 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 if there are voters who, whose minds are capable of being changed or up for grabs, and who are tr who truly could vote for an R or D? You know, we talk about how there aren't actually that many of those people. Most people are, you know, fairly operating off fairly partisan assumptions at this point. I, I can't imagine watching this debate and, and thinking that that man is capable of um, of, of being in the Senate. Uh, that's very sad to say. I, oh, I that's don't. so interesting because I was agreeing with you up until the claim that he's not capable of being in the Senate. Not because, because I, so I agree that it was a very difficult to watch debate. Obviously, you know, I think folks have a lot of compassion for what it means to have to recover from a stroke publicly. It's a terrible situation mm -hmm. for anybody to be in and was completely unpredictable. Uh, however, it was, it was a poor showing and I think it probably made a lot of people very uncomfortable. 
However, I also do think that a lot of voters are simply looking for the person who is going to co-sign a Democratic Party agenda versus a Republican agenda. And as many people who have been, you know, working for many years on the Hill will attest to, it doesn't take a lot to be there to pull and push that button or, or pull I mean, that lever maybe that's true. for an agenda. Yeah, maybe that's true. Uh, it, if there are people voting based on presentation or clarity of communication or anything like that, Look, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a communications problem, and 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 maybe he's recovering and he'll be a lot better in a couple weeks, in months. But I would have great. I, I wouldn't blame anyone for having grave doubts about his fitness um, after watching that. It was it was that bad. It was so bad. It it was. I mean, it was embarrassing. It was hard to watch. It was painful to watch because I, I I feel bad for him that he's in this position. You know, you wonder what other choices could be made. Obviously, this yeah, well, happened. I, we were looking at the actual day. This happened. The stroke happened a few days right the before the primary, which he won. Yeah. So I, I think that there's uh, a reason that people that he won the primary and that people are excited about him in the first place. They voted for him in the primary, yeah. knowing that he had had a stroke because he's very known in Pennsylvania. Well, he's but known I as a, a local, a local guy who is really in touch with the people, who doesn't put on airs and presents in a way that is relatable to folks. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of what, what Pennsylvania and Philadelphia has to offer as their sports teams have been doing very well recently. And you can see exactly why he would be approachable. We interviewed him on this sort of show. I think, it, well, I think it was before you joined us. It was me and Ryan Grimm, I think. And yeah, I, I saw absolutely why he was a successful candidate. So I thought there was, so absolutely so thought so there was the, something alluring about him. That was before the stroke. Right, but so, different... so the question is, knowing people voted for him knowing that he had a stroke because they were invested in who he was before. But I don't and think I they think, knew the extent minute, of... For the, for the people who still feel that way. The question is, do you have enough confidence in the trajectory of recovery? Do you have people in your life who have had strokes, et cetera? And do you care enough about the issues like some things we're about to discuss in terms of uh, the abortion rights, mm -hmm. which Dr. Oz would not squarely ask, answer whether or not he would uphold them and said basically that a woman's role, <laughs> a, woman should, a woman's right to choose should be made and established in consultation with her local politician. Yeah, let's actually, and, let's play that clip. Yeah. yeah. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Do you believe that the choice for abortion belongs between you and your doctor? That's what I fight for. Roe v. Wade, for me, is, should be the law. He celebrated when Roe v. Wade went down, and my campaign would fight for Roe v. Wade, and if given the opportunity to codify it into law. So Dr. Oz was asked really specifically whether or not he would support uh, Mitch McConnell's federal ban on abortion. And he said, well, I don't agree with any uh, federal interference with your abortion rights. And he was asked again to clarify whether or not he would Lindsey support Grams, an abortion. Right? Lindsey Graham, sorry, who did I say? McConnell. Sorry, Lindsey Graham's uh, ban. And he was asked again, and that's what provoked the statement of, of well, you know, he, he clearly left the door open to, to statewide interference with your right to choose, which is the concern here, obviously. Yeah. I, look, I, I'm not saying that was a great answer or anything. I, I think it's just very beside the point because he just, he couldn't do a Fetterman. It, it was rough. It was so what, rough. So I, we should talk a little that, bit about but. what Federer affirmatively said. For example, again, on the issues, some other people might be concerned with the fact that there is this uh, 
assessment from Dr. From, from Fetterman that Oz is planning to cut Social Security, and Dr. Oz denied it vociferously and said that Dr. Uh, that Fetterman has no evidence of that. And Fetterman didn't have evidence of it in the debate. He was unable to recall why it was that he believed Oz had that plan. You know, and uh, some fact checks and follow up. You know, Oz has said back in April that he approved of Republican uh, senatorial chairman chairs Rick Scott's plan to sunset federal legislation after five years. In that interview, Oz praised Scott, saying his vision for what the party can do going forward, um, uh, saying he has a game plan and endorsing the policy to sunset programs like Social Security. And as I'll talk about at length in my radar, that is, broadly speaking, the Republican Party's stated approach to addressing the inflation crisis. A, so I think that's real. And again, for voters who care about someone who's going to be a consistent vote on upholding those kind of social safety net programs that so many folks rely on, they might not care about some of the, the I mean, a lot of Pennsylvania issues. voters care about fracking. He, Fetterman was asked about it uh, because he said he supported fracking, but there's video footage of him uh, from uh, several years ago saying, exp uh, expressing the other view, and he was asked why he had changed his mind, and, and he just he he repeated, I yeah. support fracking yeah. a couple times. And yeah, there's something weirdly kind of honest. <laughs> Politicians flip-flop their uh, uh, yeah. decisions all the time, and it was kind of nice not to hear the ridiculous justification for it. Okay, you support fracking now. I don't support fracking, to be clear, and I think a lot of leftists were disappointed by a lot of the um, concessions that he was making to a more conservative mm -hmm. base. But look, all we can do is sit and watch. In response to his debate performance, the Fetterman campaign claimed they were working off of delayed closed captioning. Last night's debate was hosted by a News Nation. News Nation uh, is the parent company, uh, News Nation's parent company, rather, is Nextar Media, which also owns The Hill. Uh, and they released a statement in response to Fetterman's claims disputing them, saying both candidates were offered the opportunity for two full rehearsals with the same equipment used in tonight's debate. Mr. Fetterman chose to do only one. In fact, Nexstar's production team went to extraordinary lengths to ensure the effectiveness of the closed captioning process and to accommodate several last-minute requests of the Fetterman campaign. The closed captioning process functioned as expected during rehearsal and again during tonight's debate. We regret that Mr. Fetterman and his campaign feel otherwise. So there you have it. And we will back, be back with more Rising right after this. So on Monday, 30 House progressives released a letter asking President Biden to push harder for direct negotiations with Russia over the war in Ukraine. An anonymous House aide told The Hill's Hannah Trudeau that the letter was circulated for signatures in June. However, the source wasn't sure why it was released publicly now, noting that the law makes uh, makers, quote, didn't consider election timing. Yesterday, the Congressional Progressive Caucus retracted their initial statement. Former congressman from Michigan and first Libertarian Party member of Congress, Justin Amash, sorry, tweeted in response, quote, no Democratic constituency has been more sidelined under Biden than genuine progressives. Democrats are in control, yet progressives consistently have to settle for gestures and occasional scraps. When they step out of line, the establishment quickly reminds them who's in charge. Joining us now to discuss is senior political correspondent at The Hill, Hannah Trudeau. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. So, you know, what topsy-turvy world are we in where we have kind of libertarians and a, a, a sliver, but a meaningful sliver of the right aligned with non-elected progressive protesters and LaRoucheites in the street <laughs> to form this really anemic anti-war movement wherein progressives are bending the knee at the slightest bit of pushback over what was a really benign letter advocating for some abstract diplomacy? What's going on here? 
Yeah, so that's a, that's a good way of summing it up. I mean, I talked to one uh, person familiar with the drafting of this letter yesterday, early in the morning, and they basically told me, "Look, this was this was drafted by a group of, I think, uh, at the time, you know, a couple dozen House progressives." Uh, back over June or July, over the summer months, when things looked pretty different uh, on the ground in terms of at least the public perception and and the actual events, uh, at, you know, back when the Biden administration was trying to figure out what was going on, and uh, pretty candidly, you know, this person involved with the process told me that uh, the Progressive Caucus was in fact waiting until. Uh, they got to 30 signatures among their nearly 100 member caucus uh, in order to release it. And so, uh, you know, didn't quote the, the quote that I think we put in the piece was something to the effect of, you know, we didn't consider uh, the timing of the midterms when when, when folks were drafting that uh, over the summer. So, you know, in, in hindsight, I think that that's probably plausible. Now, you know, I, if you think back, to the way that things were over the, the summer, there was a lot going on. It, it was a really tumultuous time. Uh, the drafting of that letter, you know, to your point, in, in a lot of progressives' mind, was sort of benign, um, given the the unpredictable circumstances on the ground. But now I, it's it's a really tough position that they're in because, you know, like you alluded to, there are some, um, you know, really prominent progressives in the House and also, uh, you know, Sanders in the Senate came out yesterday totally kind of disavowing this letter. And that puts them in a really tricky position because while some may not even privately uh, disavow the contents of it and what they were trying to achieve, they do have to publicly um, kind of walk it back. And that's what we've seen. Right, which is a massive uh, setback for the actual uh, the sentiment of of non-intervention among uh, progressives that I guess isn't shared now with their Democratic representatives. Do you have any insight into what actually happened in terms of the letter being released? Because so maybe this staffer went rogue and released it because they actually agree with the position in the letter and you know wanted to put people on the record. Maybe it was done with permission and then the blowback from more establishment Democrats was so vicious that they decided to kind of, well, blame the staffer and say we didn't intend to release it. Do you have any more knowledge of how this actually happened? Or maybe I guess it was just somebody hit send on a document before they meant to, which does happen. It's kind of hilarious if that's what went wrong here. Uh, do, do you have any more information about that yeah so we're still we're still working through some of the reporting on that um today and, and one thing that i that i was told yesterday from the senior uh democratic hill source who is very uh very knowledgeable about sort of the process side of these things uh was basically just a total and complete uh shock that that this would have happened um it was this person's understanding again with knowledge of the situation that it was a lower level a staffer at least involved um in it which is tracks with what Jaya Paul wrote, you know, publicly, she didn't quite say lower level, but she did kind of blame it on the staff, which is, you know, in politics in DC, uh, not such a great look, obviously, but um, that seems to be at least one element of it. Although there are, you know, I think that there's probably more to the story that we're going to be reporting out in the next couple of, um, at least the next day or two, because there are kind of conflicting reports saying that Jaya Paul uh, personally, you know, signed off on the release. And, you know, like I mentioned, uh, somebody involved in the drafting of it uh, yesterday told me point blank that they were waiting to get to 30 signatures. So the fact that they were waiting, um, you know, kind of contradicts the 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 earlier narrative that it was just drafted over the summer and it's old 
and you know the language is outdated the language was outdated uh i think that that was clear to everybody that at least everybody that i talked to um but the fact that it was released uh i think is something between staff and jayapal as uh as unsatisfying of an answer as that might be i think that is probably the case and and again and, the senior help person in what way was the, the language outdated they they said that it wasn't uh, reflective of the developments, uh, re the more recent developments, or even or even kind of considering the administration's you know newer push and and sort of involvement now in, in mm. fall versus the summer. Yeah. Um, but again, you know that sort of it 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 speaks to the broader issue of like how could this happen? You know that senior that senior staffer uh, that I talked to in the Hill was basically saying this is completely. Uh, you know, a, a, a junior level, like a junior league type of move. And it was it was really shocked that it would happen at uh, the CPC just because it's so close to the election time and it's so close to, uh, you know, Democrats trying to kind of unite over one one solid message that this mm -hmm. gives uh, Republicans more fodder mm -hmm. in their minds. Well, Ukraine isn't the only area where progressives and establishment Democrats just can't seem to reach an agreement. Hannah, you reported that the left wants Democrats to focus more heavily on the economy before midterms, as opposed to abortion access, or in addition to, rather, abortion access or Donald Trump's future in the Democratic Party. What's going on there? Yeah, that's another major divide. Uh, we've been reporting that on the past couple of weeks. Uh, so Democrats, you know, progressives in particular, have been pushing for months, for most of Biden's administration, but at least the last six months or so, uh, for a more, uh, a stronger and more cogent sort of economic populist pitch uh, it, with the midterms in mind. And, and uh, mainstream Democrats, moderates, um, folk activists in sort of the the reproductive rights sector or various interest groups have pushed back and have said, you know, that's the economy is important, but it's not as important as, let's say, the Roe decision, which was huge over the summer. Again, uh, now we're seeing that shift because mainstream Democrats have kind of come around to the view that progressives have been pushing all along that it, that tracks with public polling now saying, look, the economy is overwhelmingly on the top of minds of voters, as it is almost every election cycle. There's kind of a reason that 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 phrase exists. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there was a recent poll, I think, from Siena College and The New York Times that ranked the economy as something like 26 percent and inflation, I think, 18 percent and abortion down to 5%. And that is a massive uh, red flashing sign to Democrats who are saying, oh my God, you know, we need to figure out how, what the closing pitch will be. And I think that what we're seeing is a divide among the advocates and the more traditional Democrats who thought that abortion was gonna be their silver bullet uh, in the final stretch of the midterms. And it's just not, at least as, as the polling indicates right now, it's not shaping out to be that way quite yet. Uh, not to say, you know, they're not, they're not important issues, but the fact that, you know, more traditional or moderate Democrats are trying to link abortion as an economic issue, again, that's not that that's wrong. Uh, it's just that it's not resonating that way with voters. And so there's a scramble to kind of, uh, you know, make, make the, the argument separate at this point. Mm. Well, thank you so much for those insights, Hannah. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Verified Action, the voting rights organization founded by Stacey Abrams, spent $9.4 million between 2019 and 2020 on legal fees for a boutique law firm where Allegra Lawrence Hardy 
Abrams gubernatorial campaign chairwoman is one of two named partners. That's according to new reporting by Politico's Brittany Gibson. The federal tax filings for the organization are not available beyond 2020, and Lawrence Hardy declined to comment when asked how much money the firm had received in the past two years. But Fair Fight Action maintains their funding for Lawrence's firm work to draw attention to voting rights. So joining us now to discuss is politics reporter at Politico, Brittany Gibson. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so glad to have you here. So tell us more about the story. What precisely is going on and is the issue? Yeah, so essentially we can see half the story on Fair Fight side right now. As you said, we have the tax forms for the nonprofit organization for 2019 and 2020, which show that they spent about $25 million on legal fees. And in interviews with uh, the attorneys for the case, as well as people that work at Fair Fight, uh, they said that most of that money was spent on this litigation. They don't have to provide an actual breakdown. I did ask for it, but they have not released that information. So it's about $25 million for the first two years of this litigation. And this is the case that Stacey Abrams filed at the end of 2018, uh, at the end of her last gubernatorial run. And it went to court this year. So there's an assumption as well that the legal fees will increase at least probably about the same amount of money as the first two years in these most recent two years, 2021 and 2022, when the case went to trial. On the state side, they spent $6 million uh, defending this case. And the case got its verdict uh, about a little less than a month ago. And Fair Fight Action uh, lost on the three remaining claims that uh, made it to trial this year. And what were the claims in that case, as a reminder? Yes. So it started in 2018 as a broader case. Uh, There were about, I want to say about 20 claims, everything from uh, resource allocation that led to long voting lines, the closing and changing of polling places. There was even a claim about voting machines swapping votes for Abrams and switching them to the Kemp tally. But what made it to trial after a summary judgment in early 2021 were three smaller claims that don't impact as many voters, did not impact as many voters in the last couple of election cycles. Uh, One of them is exact match for voters that register. Uh, Mostly it's going to impact voters that register outside of the automatic voter registration that happens at the the DMV when you get a driver's license or a non-driver's license of some sort. Uh, The accuracy of the voting rolls on election day, so that would impact voters that in the system's voter maintenance uh, checks uh, when they look for people who might be felons and they they say, oh, this person's name matches a felon that's also Mm -hmm. in this county, they might be a felon. And then the third part was the training of poll workers who uh, would help voters cancel an absentee ballot so they could vote in person. So a very specific part of the voting training. So at the end of the day, the accusation is that she spent an outsized amount of money, not just as compared to what the defense spent, but also I saw in your article, other kind of public interest attorneys have pointed to the fact that they would expect a litigation of this sort to be much less expensive. The claims, in fact, were not meritorious in the court of law. So to the extent that they drew attention to these voting rights concerns, it's not clear at this point whether it's positive attention. And people are concerned, doubly so, because the money went to a small law firm that happens to employ someone who's been a longtime associate and friend of Stacey Abrams and who works for, uh, worked for her campaign or worked for one of her organizations. Yes, it's it's both. She was the campaign chair in 2018 and is the campaign chair for uh, this campaign. Uh, 
which is usually an unpaid position that does a lot to do with uh, fundraising, not so much the day-to-day of campaign operations. Um, yes, and that's exactly right. So the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund uh, did a study up through cases in uh, 2021 that looks at the fees that uh you know, uh, plaintiffs as well as states in in defending these cases have paid in past cases uh, similar to the one that Fair Fight Action filed. And they found the most expensive case was uh, $8.8 million in legal fees. That was a case uh, down in Texas. Uh, And typically they said it's a a couple hundred thousand dollars over a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this, the $25 million for just half of this case already makes it the most expensive. Um, so the, and I should add, it's, it's not just uh, Lawrence and Bundy, the uh, law firm of the campaign chair. They had, I believe it was eight law firms involved in this case. Um, but Lawrence and Bundy, they were the lead counsel. Yeah. So the, I mean, the implication here then is that this is something maybe not as egregious, but all along the lines of, right, the Black Lives Matter fundraising not being put to any good use and kind of just, you know, being used for kickbacks or personal enrichment, maybe, again, not on the level of buying properties, which, which is what happened with the Black Lives Matter organization. But this looks kind of uh, this looks kind of fishy based on your reporting. It's hard to come away with another conclusion. Yeah, I, you know, I remain open minded that there could be a perfectly uh, logical or innocent explanation for why this case was so expensive, why uh, they chose uh, this attorney as opposed to, you know, any other. I've asked and uh, maybe there will be a public answer. Maybe there will be some more uh, explanation given on Fair Fight's side. Um, I think what uh, is important to to think about here is what Kathleen Clark, she's a legal and ethics professor, said in the story. Uh, she said, you know, there could be an explanation, but there's a fiduciary responsibility to make the best choices. Abrams yeah. was chair of this organization uh, up until uh, 2021 when she announced her second run for governor. And so in that role as chair of the this nonprofit, chair of the board for this nonprofit, did she make the best decisions in the uh, in spending the money that she raised and Fair Fight Action during this time? This is just the 501c4, the nonprofit group, not even the Fair Fight Action uh, PAC, uh, Fair, which is called Fair Fight Inc. They raised $61 million, which is more than, Oof. you know, any other nationally known group in Georgia. And I found out through interviews with the uh, now former organizing director at the group, she left earlier this year, that uh, Fair Fight Action did not do any direct voter contact in the 2020 election Ugh. cycle. Uh, they were, you know, not uh, alone in that during the pandemic. A lot of groups that normally do direct voter work didn't. Uh, I was able to uh, verify that information, talking to other voting groups in Georgia. Um, so their their main, uh, the, the meat and potatoes of what this organization did, their main priority was this litigation. Um, and that is where they spent, uh, it looks like based on the 990 forms, the majority of their money. Sounds like we should get Stacey Abrams on another magazine cover. Yeah, look, I'm not going to ask you about this, Brittany. I don't want you to attest to this, but I have observed in interviews with on-the-ground grassroots organizers in Georgia, I detect a sliver of 
resentment. I got to say, when I hear them talking about the, how underpaid and undersupported all the ground staffers are, as we as a nation witness the enormous fundraising gains and attention that has been paid to Stacey Abrams in particular as a kind of hero of voting rights and, and electoral victory in a state, despite her own failures to win in any of her own races. And I, I, I appreciate you for bringing this story to us uh, today, because we're definitely going to have to continue following this and see if this, if, if, if what looks like the worst case scenario is in fact the worst case scenario. There's a real injustice to the people who are really working hard on the ground. Thank you again for joining us, Brittany. Yeah, great reporting. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more Rising for you. Stick around. A New York court has put an end to the state's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for municipal workers. Not only that, though, but the judge ordered that back pay be doled out to workers fired for refusing to comply. In Tuesday's ruling, Staten Island Supreme Court Justice Ralph Porzio wrote, quote, it is time for the city of New York to do what is right and what is just. Porcio also said that the order, which was implemented in October of 2021, violated the state's constitution. Porzio's decision was handed down as a result of a suit that 16 former sanitation department workers filed. They were let go for failing to get vaccinated. And now, while this is the New York Supreme Court, this isn't technically the final word on this case because New York is confusing, which you probably know better than the I Supreme do, that there court are multiple, the court. multiple yeah. Supreme Courts, and yeah. the highest court is actually the Court of Appeals. But um, this is, look, this is obviously the correct outcome, I think. Uh, my understanding is that part of the argument was some employees, not in the sanitation department, but in some other department, did receive um, a, a, were allowed not to get vaccinated, but then arbitrarily, and or there was no, you could, you could point to no reason why you would mm. give these people exemptions, not these people. But uh, thankfully, Porzio really gets into the fact of the matter, which is you can't justify this if it's not, if, if it's no longer true that you have the public health component where you need to vaccinate them so they're not going to spread it to someone else. No one is claiming that anymore. So what is the, you know, what is the Yeah, this is absolutely this? the right thing to do. You know, I, even before it became more clear how limited the protection the vaccines were against spreading the virus, it seemed obvious that we should be offering more carrots than sticks to encourage people to yes. comply. And it never should have been the case that people's livelihoods were threatened in this way in order to get them to take the vaccine. If you want kids to get vaccinated before you go to school, set up booths outside. Mm -hmm. Tell them the health reasons why it might be to their advantage and let them have that choice. You know, let people work remotely if it really is the case that you think that they absolutely cannot be safely in the workplace. But you don't get to fire people when, especially when the science is so tenuous. So the fact that you right. were able to give back pay to folks and try to make them whole in some kind of way and also obviously reinstate them, I think it's a, it's a really strong... Firing point. people is not good for their health. <laughs> not paying <laughs> no. them is not good for and their especially health. Especially in a I world mean, where we don't have basic social support safety net programs mm -hmm. or healthcare if you don't have a job. Mm -hmm. In the middle of a pandemic, the logic of putting people in a situation where if they did then contract COVID, wouldn't be able to pay for the treatment they received to keep them alive was a really craven situation. It really didn't make sense. Uh, it speaks to, yeah, it just, it's just as you said, carrots rather than sticks. Carrots are the good thing, sticks are, sticks hurt. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's the, the whole kind of force people to do this, you know, brute force it approach, which has run up against legal issues at every stage yeah. in, uh, here in New York, at the, at the national level, when Biden, you know, tried to issue the, uh, without any Congress passing any new laws, he just declared it. Um, that ran up against what the Supreme Court said. Um, so that approach has been legally problematic. I think it's morally problematic. It's tactically problematic. Yeah. And it puts people, 
you know, people who, most people did get vaccinated. Most people got the original vaccine. Most people listened but when even, they said to do it. But even people who did it, get it, did it under some degree of coercion. I mean, like, I remember yeah. having this conversation with my mom about, you know, we were planning to visit our, my grandmother. And the rationale was, well, we don't want to spread it to your grandmother. Go ahead and get vaccinated. And that's why we all kind of complied. It wasn't necessarily about our own personal mm -hmm. health as much as it was about the argument about community spread. And now, look, I think that you can make a gamble on the science. Maybe they really thought that the science was going to be conclusive, that there was a really strong public health reason to, compl to compel people to get vaccinated. But the gamble didn't play out. And so now I think the very least that people can do is try to make folks home whole. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you said, you can continue to encourage it. You can do things to make people's life easier if they want to get vaccinated. All fine with that. Um, but th there's something different about, about force, about yeah. making people doing it, about taking yeah. away Right. What should be a at some point a a, a health private health care decision? Aren't we having this conversation about how really important medical decisions to, should be left to people and their doctors? Yeah, we are having this conversation. <laughs> some of us are having the conversation in one way, and Dr. Oz is having the conversation oh. in another direction. But I, I am I am really glad to see this. I saw actually a tweet from um, Taylor Lorenz yesterday, who has spoken a lot about uh, the perspective of the disability community and has gotten a lot of criticism, obviously for being perceived as having a kind of a maximalist mm -hmm. COVID position. Including from me, even though I yeah, know and I, like Taylor personally. <laughs> I thought this tweet was kind of interesting. She says, the more times you get COVID, the more likely you are to get long COVID. Yes, even if you're vaccinated because vaccines do not stop long COVID. Any COVID infection can lead to long COVID. And the kind of logical conclusion of realizing that basically people are going to get it and getting it multiple times is going to have this cumulative effect and that vaccines don't actually protect you against long COVID. It's all pretty led, depressing. Led to an argument, I think, a strong argument and this is what I, I argued in my quote tweet, that we always should have from the beginning been em emphasizing the one thing that can actually prevent the spread and transmission of COVID, which isn't the vaccine, it's masks. Oh, you're choosing violence. So right again, at the this end of the is day. not an I'm not advocating for a mask mandate for the reasons that we mm -hmm. just described with respect to the vaccine mandate. But it is also true that high quality masks lower your risk of getting COVID and by an extraordinary percentage. And even if you use a lower quality mask or you're not entirely compliant and you're taking it down to take a sip of water and all of that stuff, if it prevents you from getting COVID six times a year and instead you only get it one time a year, that is meaningful as we're looking toward many years or perhaps a lifetime of living under this new normal. I don't know about any of that. Um, I, I don't know that the, the, um, the less good masks worn inconsistently are really doing much good at they, all. A lot are. of health officials say that they they are Robbie even the, the even against, the not against good, Omicron against these super yeah, contagious. Yes, even the the more flimsy yeah, hospital don't masks. Know about that. Uh, cut transmission rates by like fifty percent. It's not it's not perfect, and if you are immunocompromised and you really can't get COVID even once, that puts you in a tough situation. You're going to have to either get higher quality masks or stay at home, and, and you are in a difficult. I also don't th I don't think getting COVID six times a year has been a common experience for I, I anyone. Said, I literally said six times a year because when I did that tweet yesterday, someone came in my mentions and explained that they had gotten COVID six times. Wow. They had gotten COVID six times and other people have gotten COVID once or some people. People are really bad at self-diagnosis. That, that is true. And There's he, a the, lot the of... The point that he made was in his job, he has to get tested regularly. So he really knew each time that he got it. And a lot of folks probably have gotten it more and don't know because they had it asymptomatically. But the point is, he does know. He has tested positive for COVID six times. This wasn't just, I got the snivels and I think I got COVID. And, and many people, especially who are in the helping profession or in the service industry, 
are exposed in a way that those of us who get to podcast from our homes are not. So that's all to say, everyone can make their own choices, but I don't want, I wouldn't ever want to be in the position of misrepresenting the extent to which masks, more so than vaccines or a lot of these other interventions, are the thing that can keep you from getting COVID in the first place and should have been emphasized and provide you know, well, they were emphasized. And, How do you? What do you mean they were? They were emphasized. Oh, they should to have been death. emphasized over vaccines as a thing that was going to save us all. But the well, they're not more effective at preventing severe disease and no, death. No, they're not. Which is the right, the, the, you're right. The vaccines were over were wrongly stated to be doing right. something but with respect the to the community yeah, spread that. aspect of it and like ending the ending the pandemic. Look, it, it would it would make me. I, I, it would make me very happy if the high-quality masks are as effective as, as some people, some many experts suggest they are, very successful at preventing the um, spread of COVID. I hope that is the case, and that way if people who it want to wear them can be— It would make a difference for you, Robbie. Be, well, no, no, no. <laughs> you wouldn't care. I'm not going to Masking, wear them either way, exactly. but I hope that other people—I uh, I just can't, I can't wear one. Again, I can't do it, but other people, they want to protect themselves. I, I hope that is doing some good for them. I obviously I don't want people to get sick, I, and people who want to take extra protection to avoid getting sick. Uh, they should absolutely do that, and I hope the masks are working for them. All right. Well, I, I got not wear them anymore. We're going to log off. I'm going to order another pack of KN95s, but we'll have more rising <laughs> for you right after this. Recall when former MMA fighter and actress Gina Carano was canceled last year for making a comparison between the U.S.'s political climate and Nazi Germany? Here is what was posted on her Instagram story back in the day. Quote, Jews were beaten in the streets not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children, because history is edited. Most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jewish. A side-by-side -side comparison of Carano's post with one liberal actress, Susan Sarandon's, are, to some people's eyes, somewhat similar. Yet Sarandon has, so in far. some people's <laughs> eyes, gotten off relatively scot-free. Sarandon tweeted a photo that read, quote, it didn't start with gas chambers. It started with one party controlling the media, one party controlling the message, one party deciding what is the truth, one party, party censoring speech and silencing opposition, one party dividing citizens into us and them and calling on their suppressors, uh, sorry, their supporters to harass them. Yeah, we should be careful. This has been 24 hours. I don't know. Susan Sarandon might suffer some kind of consequence for this. But the point being, and what, we, what people have pointed out, I think rightly, is that they, while they weren't exactly the same sentiment, also Gina Carano had tweeted uh, a picture that was described as being anti-Semitic. I, I didn't. Th I, I remember this very clearly. So it, it's that table with kind of the the, the powerful. It, it's sort of an anti-global or anti-kind of global world government poster that I think if you're, I think like. Only one percent of the population would understand why there's an anti, like there's you know the eye in the pyramid, that kind of stuff. Yes, there are some connect, like among some people who are like absolute information uh, experts in hate crime type stuff, could say like, well, this has been used in some anti-Semitic context. I think most people would have just seen this image as against like the wealthy elites or some kind of global elites t type thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that all ended up, uh, Gina Carano got in trouble for all of that and it was eventually, uh, she was really canceled. She was a, she was a main character on um, The Mandalorian, the, the Star Wars show on Disney, and she was going to be the star of, of a spinoff series on her character mm -hmm. that they just dropped plans to do that because of this. So let me ask you, what was... Gina Which I thought was unfair to her. Referring to. Hmm? What, what was she alluding to with that tweet? 
Um, she, she was talking about the sort of silencing in general, uh, I, I think alluding to sort of big tech deplatforming, um, maybe some kind of, you know, have, not being able to dissent on COVID stuff, I believe, kind of general, I mean, general, you know, uh, uh, anti-consensus, anti-mainstream sort of sentiment that is now very popular among a, a faction of the right, but it used to not be necessarily coded conservative, which is in fact why Susan Sarandon was expressing a, a you know, a sentiment akin to that. Sentiment that is not, you know, totally uh, wrong or offensive. Maybe it, it you, you never want to suggest that because this is wrong, that like the Holocaust is someone bears responsibility other than the Nazis because absolutely so the, the Nazis did it. Yeah, but so there, there was that. Or do you, and you also don't want to suggest, sorry to cut you off, that anything else happening is akin to the Holocaust or akin to Nazism. It's always a bad idea to do a, you know, who else, et cetera. This is just like Hitler. You're just like always yeah. wrong if you did that because nothing is ever as bad or as serious as that, et cetera. But, especially because there seems to be a wording difference there where Carano said something about, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that Jewish people were being beat up by Nazis, which I think maybe that's nitpicking. But the, Susan Sarandon's yeah. statement was more, it started with things mm -hmm. that were something short of literal Nazis and built. You could read Gina's statement as, it, you know, it's not that, it's not that Nazis persecuted. I think persecuted. was a little messier, It, it, was, a, it was a messier sure. draft. And another thing is I was going to follow up by asking what was Susan Sarandon's tweet perceived to be pertaining to? Was it about no. the recent Kanye West and anti-Semitism stuff, in which case I think there would be more I, leniency about... Um, bringing up the I mean, Holocaust. You, you know Susan Sarandon better than I do, I, well, I, <laughs> to we, be we frank, We have not right? chatted about this tweet. <laughs> but like, if, if it were brought up in the context of the anti-Semitism, conversation right. about anti-Semitism that was sparked by Kanye West's remarks, I think that a lot of people would say it makes sense to bring up the Holocaust to talk about how anti-Semitism is bad. If it's being brought up more broadly in the way that Carano's tweet was to just say something about impending fascism or whatever you perceive to be as a threat from your political perspective, that I can see why there is lash back, you know, hmm. there's, there's a critici criticism in either direction. Well, uh, Candace Owens, who is the Brianna Joy Gray of the right. <laughs> uh, as I'm a... told frequently that I'm the Candace Owens of the left. <laughs> well, she faced backlash for tirelessly defending rapper Ye's bombastic rhetoric, uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric against Jewish people. And she has claimed free speech is under attack. However, in a tweet responding to one of her many critics, Owens tweeted that one of them threatened her. The critic wrote, quote, don't mess with the Jews and directed the message at Owens and Kanye West. Yeah, Kenneth Owens has absolutely stood by Kanye over all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because, you know, she's a high-profile commentator at the Daily Wire, mm -hmm. which is uh, was founded, co-founded by um, by Ben Shapiro, who is a notable mm -hmm. conservative, political conservative, uh, Jewish. And PragerU, um, she's made the point person. of explaining that PragerU was founded, I think, by uh, a, an Orthodox Jewish person, mm -hmm. and she has raised that as a rebuttal to some of the criticisms. But here, the critique is not necessarily about whether or not she's standing by. Uh, inappropriately in letting this edit, not critiquing these anti-Semitic remarks, but whether or not she's a hypocrite with respect to some of her statements about cancel culture, is the screen grab there that she is holding up as a, an example of her being targeted something that should be censored? Is she kind of consistently saying there's a line that gets crossed and people should be pulled off social media and censored if they really do threaten mm -hmm. someone? Is saying, you know, what, you know, don't mess with the Jews, the level of threat 
that should get you pulled off of social media? And if so, I don't know how you can defend Kanye West saying, I'm going to go Death Con 3 or Death Con 4. I don't know which Death Con. I think it was Death three. Con 3. But what's the word? The five, well, one is, one is a high state. It doesn't go from five down to one. I don't and think one that is a high state of Death Con is nothing at all. Okay. <laughs> but Death Con 1, I'm not sure if it goes higher to lower, like degrees of burn or whatever. What's the movie? Do you remember the movie where, uh, sorry, this is beside the point. I won't get into this. The, uh, the War Games movie with the, where the computer decides to launch all the missiles and they defeat, it's this old, it's a great movie. They defeat the com- the computer goes rogue and decides to start World War Three, and they defeat it by making it play tic tac toe against itself and learning the only winning move is not to play, and then it doesn't launch the. Yeah, I, I missed that, Jim Robbie, but I, I'm curious. I'm curious to see what a what great you lesson think. for our conflict. Is, Robbie, anyway, sorry. Is is this? You have to answer this question. Is is Con- uh, Candace Owens being inconsistent here and calling for the censorship of this person who's st- there's always on yes media. There, look cancel culture is a very difficult and very fuzzy and very inconsistent and diff- and frankly difficult even if you're trying to be principled and consistent about it as I strive to be as someone who is worried about cancel culture and talks about it a lot and I try to be consistent on it and sometimes it just breaks down because we do all instinctively want people who say utterly reprehensible things. We think it's appropriate for them to suffer some consequence that is proportionate to what they said so they learn better behavior and don't do it. The issue is that because of social media, it is basically impossible to make someone suffer the right amount of punishment. This isn't like, you know, you did something wrong at recess and you're going to clap erasers after school. It's now everyone is going to be yelling at you, screaming at you about how you're the worst person ever for, uh, for, for hours and sometimes days. And you know, if you're a famous people, person, whatever, although Kanye is now losing significant wealth because of what he did, maybe you think that's justified, maybe you think that's fair. I don't know. I, I tend to think cancel culture isn't necessarily where already powerful, wealthy, famous people um, should, are, are being held, and, and it's fine to hold them to a great, kind of greater degree of scrutiny. Although, I, again, with my actors and actresses, yeah. I don't really care what they think. If you're worried about cancel culture, you should be more worried when no ordinary people, working class people, suffer like lose their job because they yeah. did or said something wrong. That's well, really the, what the we're little, getting at. The little guy here culture. said, uh, "Don't mess with the Jews." Candace Owens thinks that's a problem. Kanye West, the big guy here, said, "I'm going Death Con three on Jewish people." You decide tomorrow morning. We report. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, uh, David Zweig will be with us. He'll weigh in on reporting about the impact of remote schooling on test scores. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I had a friend of mine say that he found us on Roku. That's very exciting. We've In got the wild, one. <laughs> we got more than one, I think. Uh, also, if you have questions, by the way, for The Hill, we've just launched group text with The Hill's editor-in-chief, Bob Cusack. You can sign up at thehill.com. Encourage you to do that. And Bree and I will be back tomorrow. What's tomorrow? Thursday? Thursday. Yes, we will be back tomorrow. We hope to see all of you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.